Hubby and I had a conversation recently about how dad would have dealt with mom as she's declined. It's been almost two and a half years since he passed away, and she's definitely not the same person that she was when he was still living. And I don't think he would have handled it well. He didn't seek out support. I'm not sure how many of the books that I found in their house he actually read. Most of them didn't look very well read at all. And it got me to thinking I should tell you guys how I use knowledge as a coping technique. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those of us caring for a loved one with memory loss. My first real situation caring for someone with memory loss was a day that I was needed to watch my grandmother. She was, I'd guess, about mid-stage of whatever was going on with her mind. Personally, I think it was undiagnosed Alzheimer's, but it could have been related to the aneurysm that she had had years previously. Whatever it was that caused her memory loss, that day wasn't something I was looking forward to at all. The day did start out pretty well. She remembered me, so that was nice. But as the afternoon wore on, Grandma spontaneously advised me not to, quote, rush into marriage. I had been married about 16 years at this point, so her statement was kind of funny. I assumed that she had mistaken me for my younger cousin, my much younger cousin, who I think was a preteen at the time. Maybe she thought I was my mom. I assumed she thought I was my cousin because there aren't very many blondes in our family. And I assumed that she, was, she knew who she was talking to. No one gave me any advice on what to do with her, how to talk to her, nothing. So I spent most of the day letting her watch TV. Anything to avoid awkward and weird conversations. Not to mention the repetitive questions and statements she made. To be honest, I was actually quite frustrated at the assumption I had nothing better to do. My aunt was grandma's primary caregiver, and mom had taken over for a couple of days for reasons I don't remember anymore. My attitude at that time was if my mom had volunteered to do the caretaking, it wasn't right to demand that I spend an entire day handling that duty for her. I had my own household and family to deal with. Looking back, had I had any clue what to expect and how to handle grandma's needs that day could have been somewhat enjoyable. Thankfully for both of us, her needs weren't serious. Demanding a family member handle caregiving without filling them in is absolutely unfair and very unwise. Unfortunately, this happens all the time. Even when a family member is completely willing to help out, and it's, it's really important to fill them in on what to expect and handle how to handle many situations that may come up. Now, had my grandmother had some sort of serious upset or demanded to go home, I would have had no way to handle that situation. I had no knowledge. Fast forward to a few years later, when it was very obvious that my mom was going down the same path, I tried to learn what I could. And to be honest, I really wish the Alls authors had been around then because many of the books I read were clinical and depressing. 
These days, there's a lot more knowledge and help, sharing, etc. And I am truly grateful for that. I'm also grateful to be part of the knowledge and sharing space because I think the more we learn, the better we are able to handle situations and keep our stress as low as possible. When I started my podcast, I wanted to share what I had already learned, but fearing that that knowledge wouldn't provide too many episodes and honestly needing to know more myself, I started staking out other people and their knowledge. I joined my support group in November of 2017. It was about six weeks later I got the idea to search for an Alzheimer's podcast to supplement the days between the support group meetings and hopefully answering some of the questions that I had. Not finding one I liked, and to be honest, there weren't very many to choose from, I decided to start my own. Most of you know that, but what you may not know is what producing this podcast gets me. It's not money, that's for sure. Currently, this is a labor of love. What I get out of producing this podcast is knowledge and a wide network of people that I can reach out to if and when I need them. Mom has declined quite a bit in the past few months, so I may be reaching out to these people more than I have in the past. I have reached out with some of the more challenging questions that I've come up against, and unfortunately, they didn't always have a great answer. That's the problem with this disease. But this episode is not about the past. It's about how knowledge helps me cope with my mom. As with everyone, she has good days and bad, but it's impossible to know which one I'm walking into when I visit. One week, she tells me she had a great day and thanks me for giving her such a nice afternoon. And one week, she even told me she loved me, which is something I haven't heard in forever. And the following visit, she's complaining about how heavy a slice of pizza is and making really strange comments about my dad. At least the comments mention her husband, but whatever she was trying to explain to me made absolutely no sense. For anybody who hasn't listened recently or might be new, my mom is at the stage where she uses the incorrect word quite frequently. So it's a little humorous and a lot challenging. Then there's the days that she's snarky or even rude. Days she forgets I'm even there, though I'm sitting next to her. And all of these incidents leave dings in my heart. There are times those dings put me on the wrong path for the next day or two, None of which is good for me mentally, but it's part of the disease. At least that's what I'm reminded about whenever I get into a conversation with another caregiver. These are the times that I turn to my small but ever-growing library of books. But I've been doing more than reading lately. In May, I attended the Savvy Caregiver Training, which is a fantastic program. You heard about that program last week. I also attended a conference with Tipa Snow, and I'll tell you more about that in a bit. What I've been finding is that the more I learn about Alzheimer's and caregiving, the more I can handle the barbs and the snark and the sadness. That's what I want to share today, how I use knowledge to cope with the stress and sadness of helping care for someone in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's. So let me go back a bit in history first. As regular listeners know, one of the issues with mom very early on was her frequent habit of not giving detailed or any instructions on client orders. I'm sure there was a better, less stressful way to deal with this issue, but mom was in complete denial. 
and I did my best not to be obvious about how I dealt with what was going on with her memory. I promise you, if she had accepted what was going on and we had had a frank discussion as a family, I think a lot of things would have been better for everyone. Fortunately, these days, the stigma of memory loss is decreasing, but this was the late 90s, early 2000s, and admitting to having memory issues wasn't very common. The fact that so many more people are admitting they have Alzheimer's or dementia is just a testament to the sad reality of how big a problem this disease truly is to our world. I know my dad did some reading, but he never attended a support group, never accepted help from us daughters. I'm still baffled and frustrated over his refusal to even consider an adult day program for mom. I understood then it would be good for both of them, but these days I know how beneficial they can be. There are two day programs in my area, and a couple of the people from my support group have loved ones that attend the program. One enjoys it so much they had to figure out an exit strategy because he didn't want to leave. The other thing regular listeners should know is there are a lot more supportive programs for people in the early stages than there were when my mom was in that stage. I strongly suggest you research and find the ones that work for you and your loved one. Being with people on the same journey will go a long way in preventing isolation and loneliness as the disease progresses. The Alzheimer's Association has groups for both the person in the early stage of the disease and their care partner. Next week, you'll hear about a program that helps the care partner and their loved one learn how to communicate non-verbally. And by next week, I think I mean August 20th, not August 13th. (laughs) Learning to communicate non-verbally is an important skill that you need much later on in the disease. I'm learning that with my mom, and she can still talk to me, but like I've mentioned, many of the words make zero sense. But back to knowledge as a coping technique. Let me tell you a story. As many of you know, my mom does not remember that my dad has died. As of this recording, it's been almost two and a half years, and there's been only two very short moments when she did remember. One of my mom's repetition is, and it's always in this tone of voice, does my husband know where I'm going? For a long time, I would answer, yes, mom, dad knows where we're going, only to get the question again in two minutes, then another two minutes, and another two minutes, and so on. Yes, my dad liked to know where she was going and when she'd be back, but her constant asking of the same question makes it sound like he was abusive. His patience did run thin, but I never saw him angry about what she may or may not be doing, so having to hear that concern from her over and over and over really stressed me out. Then one day it just hit me. She asked that question and I said, yeah, he does. In that moment, I realized that by stating that yes, dad knew where we were going caused her more confusion since she doesn't remember how I relate to her. Funny enough, even though she's declined dramatically in the past couple of months, a very simplistic answer to this question, or the alternative version, did you see my husband, blah, 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 results in her asking it a lot less often. Sometimes she'll only ask once or twice, which (laughs) that's a lot easier to deal with. It's even easier to deal with it when she makes weird statements like she did the other day. 
She asked me if I had seen her husband, and I said no. Well, he was just lying there. I don't know why. Maybe sleeping, and then the words that followed did not make sense in the context of what she had just said. I was able to hear what she was trying to say and make an appropriate comment. At least, I assume it was appropriate because she didn't bring him up again. I'm not sure I would have had that aha moment if I had not had the pleasure of talking to so many different guests from so many different walks of life. When I think about each guest individually and their lives prior to Alzheimer's and how they navigated the journey, I feel really blessed to have a piece of their knowledge to use and to share. It's their sharing of knowledge that has made me really open to seeking out more. For example, the Savvy Caregiver training was talked about in my support group. One gal had done the six-week version, but the Alzheimer's Association was offering a three-week class right in my hometown for the first time. It was on a day and time that didn't interfere with anything else, especially my morning workout, so I decided to go. Now, because my mom is in a care residence, a lot of what I learned isn't as relevant to me because we don't live together. However, I did take away quite a bit from this class anyway. When I have a stressful day with her, I remind myself to turn to what I learned, the books I have, and remind me of what I probably already know. So let me tell you about what I got from the Savvy Caregiver Training. And just a quick plug, if you didn't hear the details of the program from last week's episode, then you might want to check that one out and then come back to this spot on this one. First, if you think the Savvy Caregiver Program is going to teach you how to make your loved one be better, remember more, I could tell you that's not the case at all. This program trains us, the caregiver. Alzheimer's and dementia affect each person differently, so each of us has our own unique struggles. Despite the differences, however, each of us has to learn how we have to change to make this journey with our loved one more bearable. Caregiving is not a relationship like spouse or daughter. It's a role with a job description. Unfortunately, the tasks involved increase as your loved one declines. The Savvy Caregiver Program is designed to provide you with the, quote, on-the-job training you desperately need. Now, you may not believe that you need caregiver training, but I can guarantee you, you will be glad you sought training out once you've completed some of it. If I benefited from my recent learning experiences, then you will too. Some of what we learned during our savvy training was how to manage daily life with our person. Learning how to guide the person's behavior throughout the day is crucial. A good deal of your time caregiving will be spent trying to get your loved one to do things they enjoy. This is called contented enjoyment. You do not have to be an activities director coming up with new and fun things to do. Learning to be a savvy caregiver will help you help them participate in everyday common tasks. If your loved one is focused, using their abilities, and feeling like they are doing something beneficial, you're providing contented enjoyment. If they're content, your day will likely go a lot smoother. Family caregivers assume increasingly more responsibility for how the life of a person living with Alzheimer's proceeds. We take on a lifetime of tasks. 
We become the accountant, making sure bills get paid on time, a financial planner who manages the money and makes decisions about it. We become personal assistants who arrange and keep their appointments. We keep the home clean and in working order, and the list goes on and on and on. Most households have at least two people who manage all those tasks. I know in my household, there are things my hubby does because I have no patience for dealing with things like paperwork and talking to banks and insurance companies. And I do the things he's not good at, and our household runs pretty smoothly. For sure, the dogs are quite content and comfortable, so that's something. But when we have to assume the tasks that aren't in our wheelhouse, we're faced with new challenges we didn't think we'd have to deal with. Add in learning how to deal with someone with a dying brain, and everything starts to feel overwhelming. What I got out of the program the most was learning how to guide mom's behavior. And the term behavior here only means action, not good or bad. I learned how to guide her into contented enjoyment. The behavior of someone with Alzheimer's can be puzzling to a caregiver, like I needed to tell you that. I've been on this journey a very long time with mom, and I'm still frequently baffled. I've learned as the disease has progressed, mom has less ability to be able to direct her own behavior. She definitely responds to what she thinks I want by thinking I'm saying she's using her intuitive mind. Let me repeat that because that came out funny. When I say she's thinking, she's using her instincts, not her logical memory. Everyone living with Alzheimer's will become more confused and have less reliable powers of thought and communication. That's very true for me right now. Mom will say things that I have an impossible time translating and it causes her great frustration. I do my best to let her explain and frequently her frustration wins before I've been able to figure out what she wants. She gives up quickly, sometimes at the first lost word she can't come up with. And when this happens, I just let it go. I don't try to pressure her into trying to figure out what she was trying to tell me 30 seconds ago because it's gone. To avoid this as much as possible, I try to predict what she may want or what she needs or what she feels she has to do before we move on to whatever it is I have planned. And this is also an instinctual action. When you leave the house, there are steps that you take before you get in the car and drive away. Make sure the stove is off, make sure the doors are locked, the alarm is on, whatever it is. You have steps that you probably don't even think about as you're doing them. And people with Alzheimer's may feel the need instinctively to go through certain steps, but they don't know what steps they need to do. And so they get into this funky little routine that absolutely makes us insane and generally late to places. Confusion is a central problem in dementia, like I mentioned. Confusion is the upsetting feeling of being mixed up and overwhelmed by all that is going on around us. It is the root of many of the problems that we caregivers face, particularly particularly problems related to behavior. That was a tricky sentence. Here's a really good example of how caregivers can inadvertently bring out a negative behavior. Recently, mom was really upset thinking someone had stolen her purse. She said as much to the caregiver in charge, who happens to be a very sweet and very patient person. 
In a cheerful voice, the caregiver said, Isn't that your purse on your arm, Diane? Mom was so irritated, she swung her purse at the poor gal's head. I know what caused this was embarrassment. Mom was embarrassed that her purse was on her the entire time she she was blaming someone for stealing it. It's an easy mistake to make to point this out, and it's hard not to react immediately to solve a situation, but a better solution might have been something like this. Mom says, Someone stole my purse. Caregiver, okay, you're telling me that someone may have stolen your purse. Let's look for it together. By acknowledging what mom was saying, it likely would have helped her to calm down just a little bit. After a minute or so, not very long, especially with my mom, the caregiver could have pulled the purse into view and said, Diane, you found it. Oh my gosh, I've lost my purse that way too. All this, of course, is easy to remember after the fact. We're not wired to take a minute to think about how we should respond, but it's important that we realize how we respond might be the difference between a nice mood and a purse aimed at your face. It won't be automatic at first, but learning how to interact differently is definitely worth the challenge. Of course, I'm still working on some of my interactions with mom. She is very unsure whenever she has to walk on the grass or if there are shadows on the pavement, and I know one of these days she's going to fall flat on her face. Of course, I'm trying to prevent that, but she won't hold my hand or take my elbow, and the more subtle and better technique I recently learned isn't easy to use on her. If you're following me on Instagram, and you should be, you'll see that my mom has a very large curved back. Because of this, putting my hand on her shoulder with my arm down her scapula isn't easy because I can't find it. (laughs) And she wiggles and fusses if I attempt to use this guiding technique. It's crazy. I'm going to continue to work on it because I'm completely convinced that at some point she's going to fall flat on her face and I won't be able to prevent it from happening. And I don't want that. One of my biggest challenges helping her to feel steady when she walks on the grass is how I communicate that I want to help. Asking her if she wants help always gets a no. Suggesting that I would be more comfortable if we went arm in arm, assuming that, you know, giving her the impression that I feel like I might fall gets a no. If I am able to grab her elbow with mine, she acts like I'm causing great pain, which I'm not. But people with Alzheimer's also start to feel things differently. So I I don't force that on her because I'm not sure if what she's feeling is and telling me is honest or not. Even with this awareness and a very light touch, mom fights me like I'm trying to kidnap her. And it's so frustrating, especially when we're in the park. I'm afraid one of these days somebody's going to confront me. Knowing that she needs a steadying hand keeps me looking for a way to help her without her resisting. I'll let you know if I come up with a solution, but I'm not not convinced that's going to happen. My other challenge is that she watches her feet when she walks, so she's essentially walking bent over like an L. Watching her feet, tip-tapping, feeling out the ground or the grass or the pavement, it's enough to make me crazy. She looks like she's walking through landmines. Behaviors is probably the first thing we need to learn how to manage. 
ours and theirs. As their disease progresses, we need to learn how to communicate differently. So here's a mental exercise we did in the Savvy Caregiver Training. Think back on a time when you were with friends and family in a comfortable, pleasurable conversation. When you play the scene back in your mind, think about how the conversation unfolds. How much of the interactions depended just on the words you say to each other? How much are you relying on special vocabulary that you've developed among yourselves over time? What words have meanings only really understood by those friends and family members? And how much of the communication among you is conveyed by gesture? The raised eyebrow, the emphatic hand movement, a shrug? What about touch? How much of your meaning do you express by the physical contact you make with each other? Do you talk about someone or something in an abbreviated way because the person you're conversing with knows the background details as well as you do? Communication like this involves a lot of elements. It is very likely that these use of the elements is not something we do deliberately in the moment. These elements are woven into ordinary communications we have in our lives. We take them for granted. It's like the process involved in making a decision. We rely on the nonverbal elements that enrich and enable our communication. This example illustrates how in everyday life we take very complex and sophisticated processes for granted. We do not think about how we have arrived at an important point in our lives or how we communicate subtle and important information. Doing these things is part of the fabric of ordinary life. If we stop to think, think through all of these seemingly ordinary activities, events, and transactions, it would be exhausting. It would also greatly change the pace and rhythm of our daily lives. When we communicate with our loved one, we are not doing so with someone with the same skill set that we possess. Their disease is progressively diminishing their ability to interact with us and the world in ways that we consider ordinary. It's more than forgetting things. It's having a brain that is becoming unable to process information. We are living in an extraordinary situation, and it's an exhausting task. Like, I gotta tell you that, right? In practically every interaction with the person for whom you provide care, you have to, quote, read the situation. You have to ask yourself, how much of my person's ability can I rely on in this exchange? How much of his or her side of the exchange do I have to supply? As their disease progresses... We have to learn how to manage this rely-supply balance between us and our loved one. The more they are unable to process information, the more information we have to provide to them up front. It seems incredibly hard. That is why it's important to learn all you can, as early as you can. And I can tell you, even late in the game is better than never learning this stuff at all. I have to think for my mom almost 100%. I don't say, do you want to go to the park and watch the kids? Or would you want to go to the pool and watch the kids? Or the park with the splash zone? Because that's just going to cause her confusion. 
she doesn't remember either one of those places, so asking her if she wants to go to one versus the other is just unfair, and it's frustrating to me, so there's no point in doing that. So when I show up for a visit, and she almost always says, what are you doing here? I say, well, I'm here to visit you. You, do you want to go watch the kids play at the park? Or do you want to go watch the kids play at the pool? One or the other. I don't, I've always, I know where we're going, so I ask her if she wants to go do X that I've already planned. And since it involves children, she always wants to go. It is exhausting, but it does start our visit off a lot better. So... Knowing that we have to provide more context for our communication is the first step in learning how to guide their behavior. Finding ways to provide contented enjoyment shouldn't be a huge challenge. Ask yourself these three questions. What has your loved one always liked to do? In everyday life, what have they done to get through the day? What do you like to do and share with this person? Make your list and keep revising it as you go. Some tips to consider as they progress with the disease. How much and what parts of an activity to try with a person? How much and what kind of control to exert? How much and what kind of help to give? And what to watch out for that tells you when to back off or try something else? About six months after mom moved into the memory residence and the holidays were approaching, I realized that this would be the first Christmas that the grandkids didn't get a gift from their grandparents. I couldn't do anything about the fact that their grandfather was gone, but I thought I could help my mom create something that hopefully the two granddaughters would cherish as they got older. Mom was always a creative, crafty person, so I came up with a simple project that I assumed she could handle and would enjoy. What I didn't know or understand at the time was that her visual processing was so bad, even the simplest of projects was beyond her ability. Since I wasn't aware of this part of the disease, I just pressed on like a bull in a china shop. I had to continually explain what we were doing. I had to reassure her over and over that this project wasn't something she could screw up. I even demonstrated how a misstep was easily fixed. I got to the point where I almost gave up on creating the third gift. My original idea was to create something for the granddaughters because it was kind of girly. And I realized that my nephew might like something from his grandmother as well, girly or not. If you'd like to see photos of what mom created, they are in the show notes. What I thought would be a simple and fun way to spend an afternoon turned into a near nightmare for me. This was almost entirely because I wasn't aware of what seemed like poor eyesight being an actual part of the disease. Mom kept saying she needed her glasses, but whenever I gave them to her, she shrugged them off, which, you know, it's really super annoying. The worst was trying to get her to sign the tiles she created. I wanted it to say Grandma 2017, and then I tried to get her just to write Grandma, then G-Mom, then Diane, It was absolutely shocking to me that it took close to 20 minutes to get her to sign only her three initials. It was terrible. 
Going forward, I assumed that mom's memory was the cause of her inability to do simple versions of the creative things she used to do. It is a common suggestion to simplify their hobbies, which is the advice I was working with. It didn't help me with my visits because I kept trying to find the, quote, things she could handle. Now that I understand how badly her processing of information is, especially visually, I don't bother trying to engage her in any kind of activity other than people watching. Learning more about her disease has made it easier for me to manage my expectations, which in turn lowers my frustration levels. In turn, if I am less frustrated, mom is going to be more relaxed, and in the end, that's pretty much all I can expect these days. And if I don't get the questions every two minutes, even better. Since you're listening, I have to share more of what I've learned, right? Some common behavior issues we've all faced can be addressed by how we approach the situation. I truly wish my dad had learned some of these techniques because I'm sure they would have both been a lot happier in his final couple of years had he been able to apply what I've learned. We all love the repetitive questions, right? (laughs) No, of course not. When we've answered this question two minutes ago, it's scream-worthy to be asked again and again and again. Even toddlers aren't this bad. Knowing how to handle repetitive questions makes our life easier. Remember my story about answering mom about whether or not her husband knew where she was going? I'm not missing being asked that every two minutes. What I finally understood is that mom needs reassurance. Why a simple yes or no response works, I don't get, but it does. When it stops working, I'll look for other ways to reassure her that he's not going to come unglued because we went out kid watching. When you get a question repeated over and over, ask yourself what is the cause behind the question? Where are these questions coming from? It may be they do not know where they are. How scary a thought is that? The question might be a sign of distress. If they feel unsafe, insecure, or threatened. The confusion they understandably feel might be the threat they're unable to communicate. This was a big aha for me. Another aha moment. Knowing the reasoning behind mom's repetitive questions made it easier for me to adjust my answers as well as my mindset. Occasionally, she'll repeat the does my husband know question in a different way, and now I understand that she needs reassurances, so that's what I give her. She asked twice in less than 90 seconds the other day, so my second answer was essentially, oh, he knows what we're doing and it's all fine. He's not going to be angry because he's happy we're going to the park to watch the kids. He doesn't want to go out. It's hot outside. Not only did I reassure her that he wouldn't be angry, I also said everything was fine and he's happy that we're going out to do something she likes. I speak slowly, pausing between each thought. The answer sounds something like this. Oh, yes, he knows... Everything is going to be fine. He's happy that we're going out. We're going to the park to watch the kids play. This gives her bad mental processor time to digest what I've said before I say more. This technique actually came in handy when we hosted a French student last year. 
He was confused why he could understand me, but not most of the other people he met. I knew prior to his arrival that he had to hear the English, translate to French, decide on a response, translate the response, and then speak. Because he is 16, this all happened pretty quickly. His English is excellent, but his brain processed things in French, so he needed a little extra enunciation and a little slower speaking style so that he didn't have to ask me to repeat what I said. Of course, if I wanted to say something to hubby that I didn't necessarily want to be understood by our guest, I just spoke in the typical, quickly, California speak. Understanding how other people are processing what we're telling them helps a lot with interpersonal communication. When dealing with a person with a dying brain, it helps to consider if their question needs to be responded to in a factual manner or if you need to respond to the underlying need. A common request is the need to go home. Reminding them they are home rarely works. Thankfully, this is not one of my mom's concerns, but a lot of the residents that live with her tell me they need to go home. Some even ask me to take them. So I've had to learn how to respond, so I reassure them that they're safe and all is well. If it's a passing request, one they're making of almost everyone within their eyesight, I tell them that I will take them home, once I'm done with whatever I'm doing with mom. I reassure them that I'll be back and that we can, at that time, can figure out who is going to drive them where. And this usually works. But some residents get very agitated and they need to get the heck out of here. This place is a hellhole. And I've heard all kinds of stories. I know I have to be more careful about what I say and do when they're in that state. Sure, I could ignore them or point them in the direction of a staff person, but sometimes it doesn't work at all either. The request to go home is frequently a way of telling you they are confused, or they feel unsafe, or generally need some pretty significant reassurances and distractions. When this occurs, you can guide them to a comfortable place to sit, hold their hand and tell them that everything is okay, that they're safe and nothing bad is going to happen, and let the mood pass. Reminding them they are home, especially when it's a home they've lived in for decades, seems logical. But do we even have a clue where they are inside their heads? Do they think we're their parent, that they're children again, and they're trying to get to their childhood home? It's hard to know for sure. What I do know is saying things like you are home can sometimes bring on a rage that is pretty hard to deal with. If you were confused about where you were and someone said, this is where you're supposed to be without providing context, you'd be pretty upset too. Since providing context doesn't help with someone with a brain disease, the next best step is to provide reassurance. Now, think about my foreign exchange student again. Let's say he got lost somewhere where no one spoke a language he understood. Maybe he was mugged, knocked out, woke up completely confused, and everyone he attempted to communicate with patted him on the head and moved along. Do you think he'd shrug his shoulders and sit quietly on the bench till someone came along he could communicate with? Not likely. He'd be terrified, and chances are he wouldn't behave in a way that we thought was okay. That's kind of what goes on with our loved ones. When they're demanding to go home and they are home, it's like, eh, (laughs) how do we deal with that? Keeping that confusion in our mind can help us reassure them. 
keeping this confusion in mind helps me recognize the cues that it's time to go home for my mom. When she starts saying that she's unsure where her room is, I know she's ready to go. I don't know what triggers her need to be in her room, but I do know if I don't move us along pretty quickly, her attitude takes a pretty negative dip. It's likely she's tired from our people watching or whatever we've been doing. We had a lovely time last Thanksgiving with my almost son-in-law's family. Mom was having a good time. and This was a familiar event, even if the faces were mostly new. The whole atmosphere felt normal. My husband was cleaning up when Mom made the comment that she didn't know where her room was. He paused and then said something like, You're at my house, Mom. Your room is back where you live. Seems like a reasonable answer. Fortunately, I had heard her from the other room and knew immediately it was time to take her home. Hubby was pretty impressed with that bit of detective work because it didn't occur to him that that's what she needed. If you think about what could have transpired, we could have gone from a nice holiday with family to a negative, stressful ending. Had I not realized that she was ready to go home, needed to go home, I might have insisted that she sit, have some more tea, whatever seemed appropriate in the moment. I could totally see her getting frustrated and getting louder and louder about her concern that she couldn't find her room. Of course, this would have been stressful for everyone, and it could have ended in her getting violent. That happens a lot with other people's loved ones, not with my mom, thankfully. I've learned, and violent outbursts aren't common with her. Another super frustrating behavior many caregivers have to cope with is pacing and wandering. Many people with dementia walk a lot. My mom's neighbor walks constantly. I'm not sure I ever see her sit for more than a minute. It is important to distinguish between good walking from disturbed walking. Pacing can provide a way to wear off excess energy. Walking is a good outlet and should be encouraged. But some folks who walk or pace a lot seem to be searching for something. There is often a troubled way or troubled quality in the way they move. Do they look confused or lost or troubled? Here are some ideas about what to do about pacing. Provide walking pathways. If possible, arrange a circular walkway for your person. Be supportive and reinforce the walking if it seems to be beneficial. Look for a pattern in their walking. Is there a repetitive quality that might allow you to break the cycle they're in? Some people living with memory loss get into loops and don't know how to stop. If we're vigilant, we might see the place where we can ease them into a different activity. Another common issue that many in my support group have dealt with is nighttime wakefulness. This may be because they wake up to use the bathroom and not understanding it's still nighttime. Sometimes their sleep patterns may be disrupted due to the disease, and sometimes they sleep for short periods of time. Some suggestions that I've learned that may help are guide your person back to bed. Hopefully this cue may be enough to reinitiate sleep. This guiding may be more effective the sooner it is done. Hopefully if you catch them quickly enough, they won't be in complete wakeful mode and go back to sleep. Failing that, stay with them for a while, which I know you probably didn't want to hear. They may be more confused in the night, and the added comfort of your presence will soothe them back to sleep. 
Maybe give a comfort snack a try, like cookies and milk or some relaxed tea. And I actually have a really great relaxed tea I get from Harney and Sons. Try to keep your loved one quiet in an effort to foster sleep either way. And you probably want to keep the lights as dim as possible, just like when we had babies and you didn't want them awake all night. Kind of a similar thing, I think. It's like the only thing I've found that's similar to raising children. Of course, you can provide a quiet activity. Rely on what you know to make this choice. Tailor it to what you know about their wakefulness pattern. I always seem to fall asleep reading, so maybe a book, like the two lap books, would lull them back to sleep. And if you're not familiar with the two lap books, go back quite a ways in the episodes, and there's a whole episode about them and how they came to be. They're fantastic books. You can, of course, have them help with the evening chores to help tire them out. Maybe go for a walk together before settling down for the evening. If all else fails, consult their physician. Careful management of drugs can help the person to sleep without being drowsy the next day. And I am not a big pharmaceutical person, but your sleep is extremely crucial to your mental health and your physical health and your brain health, your overall health. If you are not getting enough sleep, you are not going to be able to do all of these mental exercises to guide them into contented enjoyment and deal with their repetitive questions or their pacing. And if you're tired and cranky, you might, you might explode at them. And that's no good. So that's why I put that in there about consulting the doctor, because your health is in my opinion, more important than theirs. You just have to maintain what they've got as long as you can. So, of course, I could read you the entire manual I got from the Savvy Caregiver Training, but then this would be the longest podcast episode in history, and you don't have time for that. And it is August 3rd, and my pod closet gets really hot, so (laughs) we're not doing that today. The bottom line is, the more you learn, the easier it is to deal with the most challenging aspects of dementia. That's been the case for me dealing with my mom. As I've mentioned, she uses a lot of the wrong words, and sometimes I just let her ramble on instead of trying to fully decipher what she's trying to tell me. At the very least, this is easier on me. I find thinking for two to be completely exhausting, So if I can eliminate some of the verbal detective work, I'm better off when I get home. Plus, if I look at it as amusing, it's not quite as sad as it really is. Mom is happy having a conversation, so as long as I don't challenge her with questions or corrections, we can usually enjoy a few minutes of chit-chat. So I hope these suggestions and how I've put them to use are giving you your own aha moments. When we can figure out a path forward with our loved ones that preserves our own brains, more power to us. However, there are times when no matter what we try, we just can't seem to break through their disease. As I mentioned earlier, mom will not, absolutely not, let me hold her hand, her elbow, nothing. She will not allow me to help steady her when she's feeling unbalanced on the grass or if the shadows make the path seem treacherous. As I said, I fear she'll fall, and it frustrates me that I can't get around her strange attitude towards physical assistance. 
So when I attended the Tipa Snow Conference, I asked her privately, how do I get mom to hold my hand or take my elbow or something that will help me prevent her from falling? She suggested giving her a hand massage with some moisturizer, which would give mom a nice sensation along with some hand holding. If you ever get the chance to see Tipa in person, it is worth the effort to get there. Within 10 minutes of our day, she had us laughing out loud. Real laughs, not like little chuckles. She can play the part of a person living with Alzheimer's all too well. She's been in the dementia business for 40 years and is in a fantastic trainer. Until she's available near, near you, you can check out her YouTube channel, which I have linked in the show notes. She's very informative and very easy to watch. I'm not sure there is anyone else out there with her level of knowledge. I've been watching some of her videos in an effort to be as knowledgeable as her, and that's not likely going to happen since I got such a late start on all my Alzheimer's caregiving education, but it's a worthy goal. She's also a trained occupational therapist, so I have, like I said, a long way to go. It's very hard to describe what I learned at Tipa's conference. She's very visual, which, of course, really helps me learn, and she's very interactive. What was the most obvious was the fact that how caregivers respond to statements or behaviors can be the difference between a positive moment and a negative one. As Tipa was demonstrating how a person who is constantly moving might behave, she, in character, said to me, Did I tell you I was from Kentucky? Tipa is from North Carolina. When I answered, no, I I didn't know you were from Kentucky, she then launched into how her mama taught her how to kill a chicken, which was pretty funny and probably not accurate. And I don't want to know if it was accurate, swinging it around by its neck. After a minute of this bizarre conversation, she moved on, swiping more belongings from unattended bags. The second time she came by, making the same... statement about being from Kentucky, I said, I thought you were from North Carolina. Whoo! Her response was to accuse the gal on the opposite side of me of making up lies about her. She accuses poor, shocked attendee of more ridiculous things. And to be honest, her acting is so good, I was a little concerned the situation would get out of hand. This was a demonstration on how what we say can negatively change a situation. My statement, I thought you were from North Carolina, wasn't intended as a challenge, but that is exactly how she took it. Note to self, go along with whatever they're saying. I actually use that theory on mom even more than I did before because now I understand that asking a question that challenges what they say is stressful for them. There were some great demonstrations of how to help someone physically like the hand-over-hand method of helping them eat or groom themselves. And I've linked that specific video in the show notes for you because this being a podcast, a verbal explanation isn't going to work too well. She also demonstrated how to help them to get into and out of a chair, or this could be the toilet as well. That knowledge got put to work within a couple of days. We have a 93-year-old World War II veteran in our Rotary Club. At the meeting two days after the conference, this member was having extreme difficulty getting up from the chair and lean on his walker. The member who brings him to the meeting asked my hubby to help him essentially haul him onto his feet. They meant well, but their technique could have hurt him and themselves. Now I'm a five foot two 
and I was able to demonstrate both getting him up and back in the chair by myself. That was worth the 40 bucks that I paid for Tipa's conference all in itself. Being short isn't a complete impediment to physically helping someone else. Good to know, since hubby is a foot taller than me. And I'll wind down this episode with one last story. This one still blows my mind. Again, regular listeners have heard me say that if I was half my age and had twice the aptitude for science, I'd go into brain research. That's mostly a joke. I find brain, the brain fascinating, but I'm not sure research is in my blood. So on July 29th, 2019, mom had her first in-home health checkup. Yeah, my mom's got insurance coverage that the Queen of England couldn't get. We won't talk about that. The nurse practitioner asked me if mom had had a recent eye exam. I responded with no, since her visual spatial processing is kaput, it's probably not worth it. Then Diane, the nurse, asked me if I was a nurse or exactly who I was. And of course, mom said I was her really good friend and she'd known me for a really long time and glad to hear that's because sometimes I wonder who she thinks I am. Diane the nurse, and I mean, seriously, how many Dianes in my mom's life? It's confusing enough without a dying brain. So when Diane asked me if I ever thought about becoming a nurse, I was like, uh, no. (laughs) I suck at science and at almost 53, I'm not sure I want to entertain the idea of many years of school. She told me to think about a two-year program that would allow me to work with researchers. I won't lie and tell you I didn't think about that a bit. I haven't ruled it out, but I don't really think it's likely because I really like podcasting. It's just when I think about everything I've learned in the last 18 months, it's, it's a bit intriguing, actually. I'm not ready to make a major life change, though. Like I said, I like podcasting. I just found it really interesting that she thought I was so knowledgeable. Being more knowledgeable than I was two years ago helps a lot. I wish I could say it makes this journey easy. It doesn't, but it does make it a little easier. Having less frustration and less stress is really hard to quantify, actually. I'm sure my better attitude has helped mom feel more secure in my presence, whoever she thinks I am. In the end, her happiness and well-being are all I can attempt to manage. So that's my show for this week. Think about watching Tipa's videos, checking out the training she offers, the Alzheimer's Association offers. Definitely check out the 200-plus authors of the Alz Authors. They've all been on this journey, and they all have a story to tell. Oh, and keep listening and sharing this podcast, of course. The more information and advice caregivers can get, the better off they'll be in the long run. We can't cure our loved ones, so it's important to make sure we take care of ourselves. Learning all we can so we're better care providers goes a long way in our own self-care. So next week, you're going to hear from the owner of the Alzheimer's Caregiver Cruise. There was a bonus episode earlier this year on her inaugural trip, but now you'll get to hear a lot more details. And hopefully, this cruise is something you'll be able to take advantage of because learning is part of the package. Thanks for tuning in. I want to remind you, if you need help right this minute, you have a question you need answered right now, you can contact the Alzheimer's Association 24-7 hotline. Their phone number is 1-800-272-3900. 
Thanks for tuning in to Fading Memories. And as always, I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday.